Before we get to that, we today are going to finish a long journey that we've been on through the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, open with me to Matthew chapter 28. And if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Someone on our team would love to come around and make sure you have a physical copy of the Bible. And as you heard before, you can follow along on the app, on your phone. The words will also be up on the screen. By the way, I'm Steve. I'm the lead pastor here. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, hopefully we get a chance to do that today uh, during that barbecue. All right, Matthew chapter 28. We come here to the end of the story. We're going to read the whole chapter before we dive in. So beginning in verse 1. After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know you are looking for Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid and yet filled with joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly, Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. This is the appropriate way to uh, say hello to someone after you've come back from the dead. <laughs> Greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. They, there they will see me. Meanwhile, the, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised the plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for Jesus, for who he is and what he has done on our behalf, for his life, for his death in our place, and for his resurrection from the dead. And for the good news that this now means we can be in right relationship with you and with each other. What a good gift. What a grace. Father, I pray as we consider this passage this morning, some of us, maybe we've heard this a million times. Help us to see it with fresh eyes today. Others of us, we haven't 
considered this truth before. Somebody dragged us here today. Maybe we're hearing this for the first time. Would you overwhelm us with the good news of Jesus' resurrection? We pray this today in Jesus' powerful name. And everybody said, amen. All right, I want to begin this morning with three stats. Everybody loves a good set of statistics on Sunday morning. So here's your three stats for today. 4%, 10%, and 23%. I want you to write those down. Keep them in the back of your mind. We will come back to those in just a little bit. 4%, 10%, 23%. But first, here we are. Okay, We have made it to the end of Matthew. If you've been around for this whole journey, maybe it feels like it's been a really long time. Maybe it feels like it's gone by quickly. Either way, we started this 40 weeks ago on December 2nd. It was the beginning of Advent. I want you to pause for just a moment and think back to December 2018. What were you doing? What challenges were you facing at that moment? And how are you different today than you were at that point? And then maybe the question again, especially if you've been with us on this journey, what stands out to you about the Jesus that we have encountered as we've made our way through the book of Matthew? Now, here we are going to end a journey. We're also going to start a new one. And quite frankly, this is just the end of the beginning. We're just getting started. Now, here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up Matthew, which is just a couple of quick thoughts, and then we're going to start transitioning into what does all of this mean for us as a church, for who we are and who we want to be as we move forward together. So three observations about how Matthew ends the story, all right? First of all, Matthew ends the story the way that he begins the story with the surprising inclusion of women in this very vital role, Mary and Mary. Remember, last Sunday, we ended with Mary and Mary sitting at the tomb, holding their grief and their sadness. Now, this morning, we see that they're still there, right? They come to the tomb, uh, which allows them to be the first people to bear witness to the good news of the resurrection. The first people to see the resurrected Jesus, Mary Magdalene and this other Mary. And then, don't miss this, the first people to preach the gospel are women. Called uh, by the angel to go and tell this good news to the disciples. This part of the story, a huge risk for Matthew. Women were not considered reliable witnesses in that culture, if Matthew and the early church wanted a more credible narrative, they should have put two dudes at the tomb. But that's not how it went down. And that's not who was there. And so as Matthew tells us the truth of the story, we see just like the way Matthew begins. Remember Matthew chapter 1, there's these four women in Jesus' genealogy, these four outliers. And as Matthew communicates the story of Jesus to a very Jewish audience, it would have been like four red flags popping out of the genealogy. Here, women, the first ones to encounter the resurrected Jesus. Matthew bookends the story with the surprising inclusion of women to demonstrate just how inclusive, how big the kingdom of heaven really is. A couple verses later, the book ends with this call, go to all nations. 
not some nations, not the people that you like. Go to all nations. This has always been the trajectory of God's story from Abraham to Abraham's family to the nation of Israel to the whole world. It is an expanding story. It is an expanding family, and it is big enough for everyone. Now, the flip of this, the flip of this is that there continues to be opposition to Jesus and his kingdom, the religious leadership, we see them still trying to combat what Jesus is up to, right? Even after the resurrection, using their power and their money and their influence to create an alternate storyline. Uh, there's something very human about this uh, desire to want to believe a conspiracy theory, right? In fact, our, our, our teaching team, and we were marinating on this passage, we had a really good time coming up with a whole bunch of different conspiracy theories, some of which I was like, whoa, that's a good one. But there's something about that, right, where it, like, we just can't accept the, the, the facts at face value. There's got to be something more going on. It's ridiculous to believe that somebody could come back to life after, after dying the death that Jesus died, right? So instead, let's believe that these bumbling, fearful disciples, these same guys who bailed on Jesus completely during his trial and crucifixion, all of a sudden muster up the courage to, in the middle of the night, sneak up on highly trained uh, uh, Roman soldiers, not wake them up, roll a gigantic stone out, out of the way, and then take off with Jesus' body, and no one knows what happened. If we've learned anything in this journey, we've learned that there's always going to be opposition to the kingdom of heaven. As inclusive as it is, as big and wide as the invitation is, there are always those who are going to refuse it. Now, last thing here, we see some uh, interesting paradoxical reactions to the resurrection of Jesus. And, and quite frankly, I would love to just spend the whole rest of the time talking about this because there's so much here. We see the women are this mixture of fear and joy. And then the disciples, it says, when they meet Jesus on that mountain, they worship, but some doubt. A mix of fear and joy, worship and doubt. Now, on, uh, on the one hand, this makes total sense, right? They have been through a lot in just the last couple of days. They've watched this unjust, tragic trial unfold. They've seen Jesus hanging on a cross. There's been darkness that covered the earth in the middle of the day. There's earthquakes, rocks splitting, zombies coming out of the tombs. Remember that from last week? And then just their own personal grief about what is happening. And now all of a sudden, Jesus is back. That is a lot to take in in a short amount of time. And it's interesting, the way Matthew ends the story is very quick, right? It's just like Jesus came back, the women saw him, there's this conspiracy going on, and then, oh, go tell about this to all the nations, right? It's very quick. It kind of, uh, I think, in the quickness of the way that Matthew ends the story, we get sort of a picture of what that must have been like, just how head-spinning this whole thing must have been for the disciples. Afraid and filled with joy, worshiping and doubting. Again, so much I would love to say about this. What I want to say this morning is this. Following Jesus is not about absolute certainty. It's not about never having a doubt or never having 
fear. It's not about having all of the answers. Faith, by definition, is stepping into uncertainty. Leslie Newbigin wrote a, a wonderful, great book called A Proper Confidence. And, and again, the book itself is fantastic, but the title is what I want us to think about here for just a moment. A Proper Confidence. Not a proper certainty. Not proper courage. Not, again, absolute anything. Proper confidence. And I love this phrase because what it speaks to is it speaks to the relational uh, aspect of following Jesus. This is, again, not about having all the answers or, or all of the boxes checked. This is about a confidence that has space for questions and doubts and fears because it trusts a person. It trusts a person who is trustworthy. The one who came back from the dead. Now, this leads us right into the best news possible, and it's summarized for us by the angel in verse 6. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Right? The trustworthiness of Jesus. Proper confidence. God does, in fact, overcome the power of sin and death. Now, there is a lot of energy... In the church, and when I say church here, I'm talking about capital C, big picture church. There's a lot of energy in the church these days around the word gospel. And, and, you know, there's long articles about this. There's gospel coalitions and gospel-centered this and that. And there's the social gospel. And there's endless arguments about which words should be in these statements and, and parsing all of these different things. And then it's also like the ultimate play in Christian conversations, okay? If there's something going on that you don't really like, all you have to do is say, it's not, it's not gospel-centered enough, right? Like, oh, they don't, it's nice, but it's not like, there's not enough gospel in it, which is really just a, a spiritual way of being a jerk, okay? <laughs> now... What I hope to do here for just a few moments is cut through some of the noise, some of the clutter, some of the baggage that we have with this word, and I want to begin doing that by asking the question, after 40 weeks in Matthew, we have spent a long time, what is the, with Jesus, what is the gospel? What is the good news? And gospel, translated literally, means good news. How would you define that? I actually want to pause here for about 30 seconds. You can jot down a note if you're a note taker. I just want you to think about it in your mind. What is the gospel? Now, at the risk of being <clears throat> simplistic... I'm going to give you the gospel in one word. All right, the gospel in a word is Jesus. And this is very, very critical for us because too often, again, we look at the gospel as a philosophical statement and we parse words and we wonder if there's enough scripture in it and all these kinds of things that we get sideways with, with each other about. But the good news is not an idea. The good news is a person. 
And this story that we've been exploring in Matthew is about God with us. It's about Emmanuel. It's about God, pardon my Spanish, but God con carne, God with flesh on. It's not about an idea. It's about a person. This is part of why we've taken such a long time to go through the book, because the gospel is a story. It is a story about a person, and a person cannot be reduced to a statement or an idea. A couple chapters back, Jesus says, truly I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And if you remember this, this is that scene where uh, this woman comes to Jesus uh, and pours this expensive perfume on him. And it's this really beautiful moment where she prepares him for what, it, what lies ahead, his death and his burial and his resurrection. Now, how many of you, again, for those of you who have been around church for a while, how many of you have heard this story, have heard this woman mentioned in a quote-unquote gospel presentation? My guess is probably none of us. And that's because we are so deeply ingrained with this thinking that the gospel is an idea, not a story about a person. Jesus assumes that the gospel will be presented as a story about him, a story about the word becoming flesh and blood and moving into the neighborhood. This is the trajectory of God's story. This is the trajectory of scripture, God moving towards us, from heaven to the neighborhood, from word to flesh, from an idea to a lived reality. It is Jesus who is the good news. Are you with me? Now, good news, almost by definition, needs to be shared, right? This is how Matthew ends the book. Jesus gives his doubting, worshiping followers this huge mission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Not some nations, not, not a few people, all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, the way that we talk about this here at Discovery, our mission is to help people discover the good news of Jesus. And we just talked about the last part of that phrase, right? Jesus is the good news. So I want to spend a few moments walking through those first three words, helping people discover. So let's start with helping, okay? We are to do something. There are no passive participants in God's kingdom. This is an active posture. We help. But that word is very critical and it's chosen very carefully. Our posture is not one of conquest. We're not coming in as the experts. We're coming alongside to walk with, to journey with. We're coming to help. Now remember how Jesus begins this statement. All authority has been given to me and then ends by saying, I am with you always. In between that, there's something for his disciples to go and do. But Jesus' book ends this mission with the reminder that this is his work. 
And yes, we get to help. We get to partner in what God is doing. But this is his mission. And I think one of the words that, that, that can trip us up and cause quite a bit of confusion is that word make. Make disciples. The actual uh, uh, best translation of the Greek there is, therefore having gone, disciple all the nations. There is no make in the Greek. And this is a very good reminder for us. This alleviates a little bit of the pressure. And it also, again, reminds us that people are not projects. Disciples are not like a Lego set that you're putting together and assembling. These are people. And again, it's God's work. It's God's mission. And we get to help him. We get to partner with him to share this good news. This brings us to people. Jesus' kingdom, we've said this many, many times, right, is the kingdom of right relationships. Jesus summarizes this very nicely in Matthew chapter 22. We are to love God and love people. The mission is relational at its core. God is missional at his core. When we talk about God, we are talking about three persons in one being. God exists as a relationship. And his mission is relational. It's about people. Now, this might feel obvious, but I think it just needs to be said very clearly. The mission is not the church. The church has a mission. The mission is not the church. The church has a mission. The mission is not about building an organization or uh, running a Sunday morning show or, or doing some sort of program during the week. The mission is people, people who need good news. And then the last piece of this is the word discover, discovery. If you ever get confused about what our mission is, just remember the name of our church and you'll, you'll get it, okay? Discovery speaks to an ongoing process. If the gospel was simply an idea, we'd have a very different kind of mission. It would just be about sharing some information. But again, the gospel is a person. A person that we relate to. The good news is a relationship. And relationships grow and evolve over time. There's always more to explore. Always more to learn. Always more to discover. This is why at the heart of the Jesus story, there's an invitation. Come and see. Follow me. Ask. Seek, knock, look for more. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had to buy that field. The joyful process of discovery. Now, I want to talk about those stats for a few minutes, okay? Remember those 4%, 10%, 23%. These relate very much to our mission as a church, to the importance of taking this seriously, this call to help people discover good news. Let's begin with the last one, 23%. This number refers to the fastest growing spiritual category of people in the United States, what is oftentimes called the nuns. And we're not talking about, you know, Catholic ladies here. These are people who, who, who would claim no religious or spiritual affiliation at all. 
Now, I don't have hard data on this, but I would guess, I would guess that that number is actually higher here in Davis. I was uh, hanging out with a, a, a local pastor a couple of weeks ago. He has been here almost 10 years, came to plant a church, and when they were in that uh, startup phase, a lot of people told them, oh man, Davis is a hard place, really antagonistic to the good news of Jesus. And so he came here expecting like arguments and pushback and all this kind of stuff, and he said that his experience over the last years has not been that at all. It's not antagonistic, it's apathetic. And having been here about 18 months, I, I see that. I see people who are so busy and consumed with work and school and sports who are so competent and able to take care of themselves, there's no need for anything else. And so church and spirituality is like a cute little hobby. It's like knitting. Like, oh, that's great for you to do that, but like, I'm not interested. That is the quintessential nun perspective. Nice for you, but of no interest to me. Now, here's the interesting thing, okay? As this group of unaffiliated uh, no spirituality people is rising in our country, we're also seeing at the same time more substance abuse, mass shootings, mental health issues, divisions. It can feel like our society is coming apart at the seams at times, right? These things are connected. We've lost the ability to answer these deep questions of meaning and being and purpose. We've lost any sense of good news. We need to recapture this white-hot vision for the good news of Jesus, the beauty of the kingdom of right relationships, the gift of meaning and purpose that we have because Jesus is resurrected from the dead. We have good news. And there are people in our world who are dying for good news. Now, 10%, this is a stat that I've shared before. This refers to the percentage of kids growing up in the church who will go on to have a resilient, lifelong faith. One out of 10. Those other 90%, a lot of those are going to become nuns. We can do better than this. We can do better than one out of ten. Finally, 4% refers to the number of churches in the West that are multiplying. Multiplying disciples, leaders, groups, campuses, new churches. And, and people who study these kinds of things, missiologists, uh, none other than, than uh, Tim Keller says that if that number went from 4% to 10%, we would see dramatic spiritual awakening and revival in our country. 96% of churches are not doing that, are not taking seriously this mission to help people discover good news. We, we're so stuck in our own thing. We're fighting culture wars. We're promoting conservative politics. We're gossiping about other Christians and other churches, and we're arguing about the color of the carpet or the volume of the music. And that's heartbreaking and tragic to the point of being sinful. Again, people desperate for good news, and we're upset about the song choice on Sunday morning. Come on. We need to get 
creative. We need to innovate. We need to think differently than we've thought before. We need to write new songs and to tell new stories and to create new language to communicate this good news for people. We need new systems and structures, different leadership styles. We need to get outside of what works for us and begin to ask the question, what is good news for others? What is good news for my professors? What is good news for my roommates? What's good news for my family? What's good news for my LGBTQ friends? What's good news for the homeless guy that I pass on my way to work every day? What is good news for my kids and their teachers and their classmates? What is good news for high-achieving, super-busy people? And what is good news for those for whom the system isn't working? Let's direct our energy towards those questions. And I think that when we take that seriously, when we start asking these kinds of questions, and when we begin experimenting and innovating with sharing good news in those kinds of environments, we're going to see change in those statistics that we've just been talking about. But to do that, we need to be willing to take risks and to trust God's power as we move together. And, and one way that we've been able to do this as a church um, this past summer was to send a team to San Diego uh, to serve alongside an organization there called Kaleo Ministries. And we've told a, a couple of stories a, about this over the course of the summer, but we also wanted to put this back out in front of us as we move into the fall. And uh, we're going to show a little video, kind of a highlight video of some of the things that the team got to do while they were there. And then my friend Rochelle is going to come and share a particular story about her experience there. So for the next few moments, let's turn our attention to that. And then I'll come back here in just a minute and wrap this all up. Everyone. So yes, the gospel is good news for everybody. And we're living for everyone to see that. The Bible says, let the nations be glad and at Christmas, we even sing, joy to the world, the Lord has come. But the news of a Savior, Jesus Christ, has a special sweetness to those who recognize their need, desperation, and hurt. And like the man I met in Chicano Park. We can go to this slide. Thanks. Chicano Park is an area underneath the bridge to Coronado Island dedicated to Latinos in the area who were relocated from their homes for development projects. The pillars of the bridge are painted in a series of murals illustrating their history. And as Amy and I admired the artwork in the history, we worked our way towards a plaza with this fountain. There were two construction workers eating lunch, some kids were skating in the park, the buzz of traffic on the bridge was overhead, the smell of alcohol permeated the area, and the ground was a little sticky. Uh, Amy and I sat around the fountain. We were praying that God would show us with whom we should share our, our lunches and talk with um, that day. I felt timid and a bit inadequate, yet I was trusting God's provision. That's when we met Miguel, a gray-haired man wearing a black puffy jacket. Living on the streets made him appear older than he really was. But what stood out most to me was this tear in his eye that refused to blink away. 
Michelle, or sorry, Miguel graciously accepted our invitation for sharing a meal. But I reckon he was really looking for company and someone to share his story. Miguel was born and raised in Tijuana. He then moved to San Diego where he met his wife and raised his family. And now he's alone. He's, his family in Mexico is past and he's estranged to his wife and his living relatives. His son has moved away to the East Coast for college. He has nobody. And Miguel recently had a doctor's appointment. He needs surgery to treat a chronic illness, and he doesn't have a job either. But Miguel doesn't have the money or insurance to cover this surgery that he needs. And so he prays. He asks God, why am I still here? Why won't you take me? And he cries. What words can I say to heal this broken heart? My own are inadequate. I cannot fathom the depths of his pain, and I cannot answer his questions, but I'm absolutely convinced of this, that God loves Miguel, and he's reaching for Miguel, and that the Holy Spirit's empowerment can speak words that will minister to his needs. So with tears in my own eyes, I said, Miguel, God loves you. He sees you. He sees your hurt. And he has purpose for your life for as long as you have breath. And after a moment, Miguel continues. Sometimes I go to that church over there. Yeah, they have service. It's nice. The people are good. We pray. We sing songs. But it's only for a while. Then I'm back here. There's nowhere else for me to go. And his face is downcast, and it brightens with a smile as he wipes his tears and says, hey, why don't we sing a song together? What songs do you know in Spanish? So with nothing to prove, I choose a kid's song I learned a decade ago from vacation Bible school. Miguel smiled and laughed in amusement about how this white girl knew some Spanish. And I assure you, I only know enough Spanish to make a joke or two about myself. Um, but after we finished singing songs, we laughed a little more and we prayed together. And I silently was thanking God for lifting Miguel's spirits, for providing some relief from his troubles, even if only for this moment. Miguel summed up our time well. We laughed, we cried, we sang, we prayed. It's time to go. And it was very nice meeting you. Igualmente, Miguel, el placer es mío. But then came the infamous question known to almost all short-term missions volunteers. When are you coming back? Will I see you tomorrow? What about next week? I would have loved to agree or promise that I'd be back next year. But I cannot lie. I may never see Miguel again with short-term missions. We're here for the moment. We encounter God in new and powerful ways and make connections to local missions agencies at best. But um, local churches are e better equipped to provide that long-term continuity of service to the community. And here in Davis, I can make a connection with somebody like Miguel and plan to see him again. But I'm only one person. And like most other college students, I'm transient here in Davis. I'm only likely to be here for two or three years more. The local church body makes a far greater impact 
in the community as a collective unit than as the sum of all the individuals doing their part. The faces of the individual volunteers may change with time, but the dedication of a church to meeting the needs of the community remains. A church like ours partnering with a local community serving organization provides a way for individuals to be a tangible expression of God's love. And this paves a way for sharing the gospel, not only for salvation, but also for encouragement of believers like Miguel. As a church, let's be imitators of God, loving as he loved, serving as he served, and spreading the news of the kingdom of heaven, beginning here in Davis, but going to the nation and to the world. Thank you, Rochelle. That was awesome. Oh, man. Um, as I said, this is the beginning of the beginning. And, and some of the things, some of the questions that, that have come up this morning, some of the things that Rochelle was just talking about, we are going to continue to explore these things uh, and to dig into these things so that, uh, as she talked about, as a community, as a church together in this, on this mission together, we can be good news for people that really, really need it. <clears throat> Now, again, we're going to spend the next several weeks exploring this, going into this more in depth, both here on Sunday morning and in groups. But I want to close today by just giving three really simple challenges, okay? Three really simple ways that we can begin to partner in this mission of helping people discover the good news of Jesus. The first one is to pray. Every great movement of God has begun with a small group of people dedicated to praying, Praying for God to move, for God's spirit to be unleashed on the community. Praying for hearts to be changed. Praying that there would be uh, activity that goes so far beyond anything that we could strategize or plan or imagine on our own. So the first thing to do is to begin praying. The second thing is to give. This might feel like a curveball based on what we've been talking about this morning, but it needs to be said Giving is one of the most simple, direct ways of partnering with what God is doing. And David did a great job of setting that up for us earlier in the gathering. Here at Discovery, giving is not about uh, religious duty or obligation. It is, again, a very tangible way to participate in this mission with God. Your giving goes towards helping us meet here in the theater on Sunday mornings. It goes towards helping us uh, have downtown space so we can be a presence in that part of the city. It goes to doing things like the barbecue today, the free student lunch next week, where we get to be uh, generous towards one another and towards others, help create connections. It allows us to hire great staff people and to partner with organizations here in Davis and Yolo County that are doing great work. And a chunk of it goes to supported missionaries on campus here at UC Davis and then missionaries around the world who we get to partner with in that way to help people discover the good news of Jesus. And just again, speaking personally for me and Amy, thinking of giving this way has really changed how we think about generosity. It's made it more fun. It's made it more real. And again, far less of a duty or an obligation. So if you consider Discovery Your Home, one way for you to partner with the mission is to give. 
It is to give, and to give, again, not just because a bag is being passed, but because, oh, this is a way that I get to partner with what God is doing in the world. And then the last thing is to participate. And what I mean by that is celebrate with us on Sunday in our gatherings. Join one of our groups, journey with us during the week, and then serve with us generously, whether that is here making Sunday morning happen or whether that's out in the community meeting real needs. And one um, very easy application at this point is to fill out that connection card. If you have not done that yet, that's a very simple way to begin this process of partnering together. But again, to close, we cannot be satisfied with the way things are. With 4% and 10% and 23%. So this is a call for us to create a new future, a new kind of church, a church dedicated to the point of being a little bit crazy about it, dedicated to helping people discover the good news of Jesus. One last statistic. Okay, this stat is the number one. And this number refers to me and it refers to you. At some point in your journey, and maybe that point was this weekend, Somebody extended an invitation to you to come and see, to come check something out, to have a conversation. And that conversation, that invitation ended up being a life-changing moment. I, I can name so many different people, communities who have been a part of that for me in my life. But this is where it gets really fun. Okay? For me, the best part of being a pastor is not standing on stage or strategizing things, or coming up with ideas. It is sitting with someone who has that discovery moment. Oh my goodness. This good news is so much bigger than I possibly imagined. This adventure is so much more exciting than I had ever known before. That is the moment that makes this so much fun. And there was one person at some point who did that for you, and you have the opportunity to do that for someone else. This is the adventure that we are on, helping people discover the good news of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we start from a place of gratitude for who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Gratitude for the trajectory of the story, that it is from you to us. You have taken the initiative to be with us. And no more abundantly clear than in the person of Jesus. We begin out of gratitude, God, for what you have done for us through Jesus on our behalf. Overcoming sin and death, the separation between us that we could be in right relationship. Then we move to humility. Humbly accepting the invitation to partner with you in your work in the world. It is your work, and we are grateful for that. But it is work that we get to help you with. And this creates clarity. This creates so much uh, uh, understanding of who we are and why we are here. To point people towards this good news that we have encountered. 
God, may we be as a church dedicated to this. Again, to the point of being a little bit crazy about it. Dedicated to asking the questions. What is good news for other people? How do we share that with them? May we be faithful to what you have asked us to do. We pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.